Welcome to our Faith Meets Mental Health podcast, a ministry of Fraser Church. This week you will hear from Dr. Matthew Sleeth, a former emergency room physician from Lexington, Kentucky, who recently presented at Fraser's May 6 Mental Health Summit about how to be a force for life in a culture of suicide. Dr. Sleeth resigned from his position at a hospital to teach, preach, and write about faith and health. He has spoken at more than 1,000 churches, campuses, and events, including serving as a monthly guest preacher at the Washington National Cathedral. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. And I don't know about you, but I was pretty wild with the first two speakers. So any questions? I, th- I, think, I think they answered pretty much everything. Um, I am going to be talking uh, quite a bit specifically about suicide, a difficult uh, topic. And I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from as I think about this with you. Uh, in other words, what are the worldviews that I bring to this? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what is happening with suicide in our country uh, over a period of years. What are the, what's the trends around suicide, in other words? I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about this. And I, I'm sort of known as an amateur theologian. I think I've taught in about 50 seminaries. Uh, and so I want to I dig into that. I want to talk about what has the church been doing about this historically, as in, um, in, in, in the distant past, but also in the recent past. And uh, I want to talk about some things that faith can offer uh, to the, the problem of suicide. Uh, and, and I'm also going to talk about some things that only faith can, can enter into this discussion. They will not come from secular uh, points of view. Uh, and I want to first of all say there's some books over here. Uh, Hope Always is a book I wrote. Uh, it's called How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. You may buy this book, uh, not buy it, you may leave a contribution for it or you may take it, it doesn't matter. And now you know why I don't have a chain of stores. Uh, If you need a bunch of these, if you need five or whatever and you don't have money, that's fine, take them. If you need a bunch of them, we, I, my books are all uh, done through a nonprofit system. I don't make anything off of them. And so if you need a hundred or something like that because you have a jail ministry or we got asked by a, a woman's uh, ministry in Denver that needed 50 or something, th- uh, I'd ask that you email us with those requests or come up and tell me afterwards. And there's also another book over here, 24-6, which is about Sabbath. And Sunday I am here at Fraser and doing the, the, the sermons are gonna be about the subject of stopping and rest and Sabbath. I'm actually gonna connect these two topics as I talk here. Um, everybody's, I feel like I should tell a joke. Do you want me to tell a joke first? Okay, I'll tell a joke first. I don't think I've ever told this joke. And it's, it's, and I said I'm gonna tell you where I'm coming from. And this is the perspective. I'm trained and I practiced emergency medicine. I ran an emergency department uh, up on, in, in New England and uh, for much of my career. 
And I want to explain something about the mindset of emergency room doctors. ER doctors and family doctors are the only generalists left in medicine. In ER in particular, we, we uh, see people regardless of the time of day. We see them regardless of whether they're old or young. We see them regardless of the organ system that's affected. We see them regardless of the severity of the disease. And we see them whether or not they can pay. And I really like that. I'm, I'm a generalist kind of thinker. And the, this joke kind of illustrates that. There's three doctors that go out duck hunting. Has anybody here ever been out hunting? Yes, okay. I am not in Connecticut. I can get away with this. Okay, so they go out hunting and there's an ER doctor and um, there's a surgeon and there's an internist. And they get out and it's real early and the sun's just beginning to come up and they hear this quack, quack, quack. And they all start to get up but the surgeon shoves the other two doctors down. Bang! Bird hits the water and the, the, the bird dog brings it in and everything. He said, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to give it to my friend, the pathologist, when we get back. <laughs> a little while later, quack, quack, and the internist jumps up and he says, my turn. Duck, roulotte quezit, pheasant, could be quail. Never gets a shot off. <laughs> a little while later, the sky is, have you guys heard this before? Oh no, good, a fresh joke. All right. A little while later, the sky is covered with birds. Quack, 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 quack. ER doc gets up, says they're mine. He unloads a machine gun into the air. <laughs> Hundreds of birds hit the water, and then he says, I don't know what they are, but they're dead now. Okay? And so the point being is that in emergency medicine, we're for what works. Okay? If it works, we're all for it. And, and I bring a little bit of that to this. And so um, I come to this question of suicide, uh, first of all, as a physician. I um, was a very unlikely person to go to medical school because I'd flunked out of high school, the 10th grade. Um, it's, it's a too long a story probably. But I um, uh, met this wonderful woman. Uh, I, I was a carpenter. And I met this wonderful woman. And she was from a Jewish home. And, uh, and we fell in love, and it was her parents' worst nightmare. Can you fathom? <laughs> if you're getting married into a Jewish family, there's only one way to get on the right side of your in-laws. Do you know what it is? Go to medical school, yeah. And so um, that's why I went to medical school, so my mother-in-law would be nice to me. Um, and, and so um, when I uh, went to medical school, uh, in uh, undergraduate school and then medical school, my faith background was that I was an atheist. I did not believe in God. And I thought that I'd seen what bad things religion could do. And, and so my worldview was not uh, one that encompassed God at all. Uh, if you couldn't measure it, if you couldn't reproduce it, I didn't want to talk to you about it. Uh, nonetheless, I believed in Hippocratic method medicine. Uh, everybody here has probably heard of the Hippocratic Oath, right? It's, it's an oath that doctors have taken for 2,500 years on, on our planet in Western society. It's only recently been dropped uh, from most, most medical schools, but I believed in that. And, um, and, and so this oath precedes Christianity on the planet by about 500 years. 
And uh, in that oath, you swear that you will never take someone's life, uh, whether that's the life of the unborn, and you will not help anyone commit suicide. And that seemed to make sense to me. Even though I didn't believe in God, it made sense to me to have a clear mission to protect life. And so that was my worldview that I brought to this. Uh, when I became a Christian, and I became a Christian about 20, 21 years ago, uh, I found that there was another whole worldview, uh, a biblical worldview. And it's an interesting thing that when Christianity uh, meets a lot of other systems, it doesn't work well. It's called syncretism. That's the fancy word for when Christianity and something else gets combined. And, and so it, it generally when Christianity gets combined with something else, the result is not good, but the real exception to that was when Christianity met Hippocratic medicine, it was a marriage literally made in heaven. And so whether you realize it or not, Christianity is one of the most medicine-based, or the most medicine-based um, uh, religion on the planet. When, when Jesus is asked by John's disciples, are, are you the one, are you the Messiah, are you the one that John baptized? What Jesus says is we opened a hospital. We got ophthalmology, the blind see. We got ENT, the deaf hear. We, we've got orthopedics, the lame walk. We've got dermatology, the lepers are healed. And down in the ER, they're resuscitating people from the dead. Jesus is constantly going about the work of healing. And so Christianity and Hippocratic medicine found this marriage. And I don't think it's by accident. I think it is God's providential plan that, um, that the, the largest single portion of the New Testament, the good news, is written by a Greek physician that practices Hippocratic medicine. And I wanna, and, and we, we live with that and we take it for granted in Western society. And I just wanna contrast this to what um, other systems can be like. I have two children, I am blessed, I have a son and a daughter, and my son is the head of the pediatrics department at Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. Everybody, anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, it's, it's a big missions hospital. Uh, and I just came back from there uh, about a week ago. And um, he, he has a, a huge medical service. Um, he had about 80 kids on his service uh, when I was there. That's big for a US hospital. Um, and one of the most frustrating things to him is when the, the national hospitals simply shut down. And the greatest, greatest frustration to him is when they shut down and they kick people out because the docs or the nurses are going on vacation or strike or they've been overwhelmed, um, is when they transfer a woman in labor to his hospital and, and the woman and the child dies getting there. Can you imagine that happening in the United States? It doesn't happen. It never happens. Why does it not happen? Why is our ethic different than theirs? Because Luke, the beloved physician, never deserted Paul. 
And so there are many Christian ethics that we bring to medicine that have been discussed here this morning, which we almost take for granted in our society, but do not take them for granted. Without Christ as our leader, uh, they will go away eventually. And so I bring that perspective of Hippocratic medicine and I bring the perspective of my faith, which I found 20 years ago. Um, and and j just to fill in just a tiny bit more, I, I found the Lord, um, he was always there, but I, I found him. And part of the, the, the explanation of that has to do with mental health. My wife and children were on vacation, a family vacation, and her brother drowned in front of her and my kids. And she got very, very depressed afterwards. It's normal, but it's not normal to stay that way. And she didn't pull out, and I couldn't get her treated, and life got very tough. And in the middle of that toughness, um, one day I picked up a Bible in a hospital, and I had never read it. And we didn't have one at home, so I stole it. <laughs> I've been forgiven. And, and, whoops. Okay. I've got dual, which one am I supposed to go with? Or I'll, try, I'll try the one I have on. Is that okay? All right. All right. Maybe that's better. Is that better? Okay. Um, so, where was I? Okay, stolen Bible. <laughs> I opened it up, and, and, uh, and I met Christ in it. And that's changed everything in my life. Um, and so that's the perspective I, I bring to this. Um, the, uh, the emergency department that I ran for a long period of time uh, was also a psych intake. We had the, one of the only involuntary uh, psychiatric uh, units uh, for quite a distance on the coast of Maine. And so, um, and I did an acting internship in psychiatry. I came very close to doing psychiatry. Psychiatry, emergency medicine, exactly the same, right? No. Um, but, um, and so I, I bring those uh, perspectives uh, to this. And I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in the trends of suicide. Raise your hand if you uh, have a friend or family member that has ended their life by suicide. Raise your hand. Look around the room. Look how many of, of you have experienced that. And, and if you've experienced that, you know the deep, deep pain that comes along with that. It's a pain that can last for generations. It's, um, it, it's a pain that leaves people wondering, did I do enough? Um, what could I have done differently? Uh, is this my fault? Is it that? And so anger and guilt and shame and all these things go around um, suicide. It is a unique type of death. If you hear that somebody has died in a car accident, that's tragic. But somehow we can, uh, we can deal with that uh, to an easier extent. And so suicide is a particular kind of death that is different than other kinds of deaths. I would say that's one of the hardest ones for us to wrap our heads around and, and to deal with uh, uh, because it's wrong in a way. 
Um, and so um, what has happened as far as suicide in the last 20, 25 years? Uh, for almost um, going on 25 years now, every year in the United States, suicide has gotten about 2% worse. It shows no real um, sign of slowing down as, in, as it accelerates. Um, we now really lead the world in suicide. But uh, one of the things that I want to uh, discourage you with, now this, uh, I don't want to discourage you, but I want us to be aware of what's really going on, is that although the suicide rate has uh, now ties the all-time high in our country's history, uh, 14 and a half suicides per 100,000 uh, per year is, is the number that we're dealing with. That, that statistic is really misleading. And I don't know how to crunch numbers anymore, but I have about 11 classes in statistics at, at the um, college and graduate level. I don't know how to crunch the numbers, but I know how to think about studies and I know how to look at the statistics, and I will tell you that uh, 14 and a half per 100,000 compared to the previous high, which was 14 and a half per 100,000 that was experienced in the aptly named Great Depression that the United States went through in the 1930s is as different as apples and oranges. Here's why. In 1930s, if you tried to kill yourself, you were successful. Um, there, uh, if you found somebody unconscious on the ground in 1931, what did you do? Pick up the phone? Well, um, only about 20 to 30% of homes in the United States had a phone. Who do you call? There was no 9-11 system. If you called a hospital, most hospitals did not have, should I just bag this and go with the, yeah, turn this off and I'll um, go this way. Okay, uh, I apologize. Um, most, um, most hospitals did not have ambulance uh, services. Most towns didn't have them. Um, if you got somebody to the hospital, the majority of hospitals in the United States did not have what were called casualty wards back then or emergency departments. If you thought somebody had overdosed on something, how did you find out what it was? If um, you could figure out what it was. How did you reverse it? Um, the most common thing that happens when people overdose and is, is that they knock out their respiratory drive. And uh, today, if somebody knocks out their respiratory drive, uh, we simply intubate them and put them on a ventilator. And we wait until their respiratory drive comes back, usually in a couple of days or whatever. Um, in 1930, there was a very primitive machine to resuscitate newborns uh, that some hospitals had. It was a temporary thing, but there was no way, there weren't iron lungs yet or anything. There was no way to resuscitate those people. Almost everyone who tries to commit suicide today is rescued. Thank God. Okay, uh, we have a 9-11 system, we can bring mobile hospitals, we can reverse drugs, we can ventilate people. 20% of the people who shoot themselves or jump off buildings can be saved if they're gotten to a trauma center in what's called the magic hour of, of trauma. And so 
I, I think of it like this. I was in my town <clears throat> uh, uh, not too long ago, and there's a, there, every town has one of these places where the traffic comes to a very abrupt stop sometimes. And they're always sweeping the glass up off of those, those areas. And in my town, it's where the hardware store is. And, um, and so I smashed on my brakes, everything came to a stop. I smashed on my brakes and I stopped, great. And then you glance up in the rear view mirror to see what your fate is. Has anyone done this? And here was my fate. There was a guy uh, with his hands over the steering wheel texting. And I prepared myself and then he dropped the phone and his mouth fell open because mommy had put him in a brand new Mercedes and the Mercedes put the brakes on. Technology saved me, not his driving. He stinks as a driver and I think mommy ought to take the key fob the Mercedes away, but Technology is hiding the extent of the problem of suicide. If we were to subtract the technology of today, and I did a kind of a back of the envelope um, calculation on this, our suicide rate would go up to around 300 per 100,000. That's a number that's never been experienced on the planet before, anywhere, anytime, in any society. We are in the midst of something nobody's ever seen. And it gets worse. Um, because uh, in 1931, if I found somebody dead on the floor and there was a syringe and there was heroin in it, that was counted as a suicide. Today, it's not. And so the, one of the confounding variables is that we no longer count suicides the same. Um, and, and, and that group is 100,000 a year that's overdosing now. And again, we're saving many, many of those people because of Narcan and, and other drugs like that. Thank goodness that they're all over the place. But technology is hiding the true extent of the problem, and the problem is horrifying when you subtract the technology. So... The first thing I want to do is just applaud this church and the people that are here because you're involved in a huge battle. This is it. This is the big battle. Um, and, and, um, and it's not getting better, uh, but we're hearing truth here this morning, and truth sets people free. Um, and <clears throat> Yeah, you can quote that. Okay, so the trend is very, very bad, and it's getting worse. And, and um, one of the things um, that, <clears throat> uh, that has changed in the period of time just since I became a doctor, and I'm almost creeping up on 70 here, um, and so I've, I've got a little history here. When I went to medical school, I went to a very secular medical school, George Washington University. Um, God was not in the picture at all when we were taught. And yet, when we had psychiatry classes, uh, when we talked about suicide, we were encouraged to ask people about their faith. Why? Because faith is important to people. <laughs> 
whether or not the people don't have faith realize it or not. Um, and faith is not only important to people, uh, Christian faith saves people's lives. And this was first elucidated by Emile Durkheim, a French sociologist about 120 years ago. And he actually studied this. And, and a Christian, it's been, it, it's not just true for Christianity, it's also true for Judaism, but Christianity has been studied as a protective force against suicide. And a committed Christian is four times less likely to take their life than an atheist. And we were taught that's important. If you're trying to save people's lives, you want to at least hook into the system that helps them. That has been subtracted. It may not be here in the Bible Belt, it may not be in this room, but I have to tell you that broadly in the United States, discussion of people's faith and suicide is, is going away or has gone away. If you get the 63-page handout from the CDC on managing suicide, all mention of faith has been expunged from it. So again, I wanna applaud you and encourage you for bringing faith back into this. Why is faith important also? Suicide is a uniquely human activity. All creatures on this planet work by protecting themselves, by looking after their interests and the interests of their children, their progeny, that sort of thing. And, and we have built-in reflexes to protect us. We have reflexes that don't even make it up to the brain, that are there to keep us away from danger and hot things and noxious uh, type of things. There has never been a zebra ever that woke up in the morning and said, to heck with it. Today, I will not run from Mr. Lion. And I just, I was on safari when I was in Africa. They run when the lions come out, you know, and are hungry. Um, there is no animal model for suicide. Only humans commit suicide or die by suicide or whatever the nomenclature is you're gonna use. It's a uniquely human activity. And so, um, because we have a worldview as Christians that we are made up of three things, that we are made up of the mind, that we are made up of the body, and that we are made up of the soul. And, and that works, <laughs> but it's been subtracted uh, from much of the modern approach uh, to mental illness and suicide. So what does the Bible say about this? Um, as far as I know, and I've read the Ramayana, I read the Bhagavad Gita, I've read the Quran, I've read a num from one into the other, I've read a number of the sacred texts of the world. And to my knowledge, our Bible is the only book that says where suicide comes from. And one of the reasons that I wrote this uh, the book Hope Always was because I went and I looked at the secular books on the subject and then I went and looked at the Christian books and what I found mostly was that the Christian books were baptizing the secular books. 
And I said, God, if you want me to write a book about this, you got to show me something out of scripture that isn't in the secular books and it isn't in the, in the Christian books on this. And I got one page into the Bible and I found something that was not mentioned in any book. And if it, it is mentioned in the book, I want you to give it to me because I'll correct this. Um, and that's where suicide comes from. On the first page of the Bible, Adam and Eve are in paradise. There's only one thing they're not supposed to do. And if they do it, what is God's warning to them? You will surely die. You will be killing yourself. You will be committing suicide. And, and this was God giving the instructions. We can assume that the instruction was perfect. And the difference between the way Adam voices it and the way that Eve voices it. Eve even has a greater understanding of this. I'm not even not supposed to eat this. I'm not supposed to touch it. And yet they did the one thing they were told would kill them. And they didn't do it alone. Who was there egging them on? Satan. Yeah. And, 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 and if you look at Satan's MO in Scripture... Uh, and I follow it, virtually every time Satan shows up, he's trying to get somebody to take their own life. If you go to the book of Job, um, you, you, the, uh, Satan is trying to get Job to end his life. Uh, Job puts it in poetry, curse God and, and die. Um, does somebody die when they curse God? Everybody's gonna drop dead practically when their team misses the, the kick or whatever. Um, we don't curse God and die. That's the poetry of Job for suicide. And, and, and if we, we just fast forward through Scripture and we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus and doing this back and forth, the temptation in the wilderness uh, uh, episode, it's called, um, what is one of the ploys that Satan tries on Jesus? Jump. Jump off the bridge. Jump off the high place. Maybe you'll be better. And when Satan enters into Judas, Judas not only betrays his Lord, but then he does what? He goes and he kills himself. This is a pattern that our instruction book of life, the Bible, tells us what's going on. We will resume Dr. Sleeth's talk on our next episode of Faith Meets Mental Health. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. And remember, you can view these episodes on our YouTube channel as well as youtube.com slash Church.